From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's a difficult conversation to have, but as our loved ones age, there comes a time when it's no longer safe for them to drive. Driving retirement is a normal part of aging, but how do we know when it's time to take the keys away? And what other steps should we be taking to keep our loved ones safe? On today's program, we'll discuss safety for older adults on the road and in their homes with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also, we'll learn about the online patient community called Mayo Clinic Connect and how digital medicine is changing health care. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, with more senior drivers on the road than ever before, the importance of driver fitness has actually increased. Your primary care doctor is in a unique position to assess your ability to keep driving and help advise you and your family when it's time to give it up. And I suspect that sometimes may not be the most pleasant conversation. It's one thing to be safe in your car, but it's also important to be safe at home. Falls are the leading cause of injury among older older adults. And here to give us some tips on driving safely into your golden years and how to keep from falling at home is Mayo Clinic internist and geriatrician, Dr. Erica Tung. Welcome back to the program. It's great to see you again. Likewise. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Tung, nice to have you here. So do you enjoy taking care of older Americans? I have the best job in the world. Really? I love being a geriatrician and an internist, and it's it's quite a privilege. So you see all age groups in the adult population, mm-hmm. right? I see all adults, but I have special uh, training and qualifications in geriatric medicine, too. And we need more of you, right, with the aging population? I suspect you're very busy. Absolutely. Right now, there's about 7,000 board-certified geriatricians in the U.S. We probably have a need for about 35,000 in the next 15 years, given the demographic change. And so it's really important that geriatricians are involved with uh, education and research and clinical practice so we can get the word out. Instead of being called a geriatrician, if you change the name to Boomer Doc, people might be interested in it. <laughs> Just spiff it up a little bit. Okay. Did you have extra training in geriatrics? Yes, I did a fellowship in geriatric medicine after internal medicine. And what do they teach you? So really it's about treating the whole person. So in addition to all the great internal medicine training I had, um, we spend a lot of time in mental health uh, training, in physical medicine and rehabilitation, in neurology, in pharmacology, and so really looking at how to take care of the older adult holistically. It seems like taking the keys away has more to do with taking my independence away. Yeah. Talking about driving can be a really heated discussion, (laughs) but it doesn't need to be. And um, it's really important that older adults, their loved ones, their family members feel comfortable talking to their primary care provider about driving fitness and driving capacity so that they can make that important decision about when to stop driving on their own terms at a controlled time, not after an accident or a serious traffic violation. So primary care providers really appreciate it when older adults and their loved ones want to have that conversation and make a responsible choice. You're just about the only person who can help a person or a family make this decision, right? I mean, you're in kind of a unique position. 
Well, I think that primary care providers really understand an older adult's medical conditions, what medicines they're on, capacities, challenges, uh, what their goals are, and can really look at that person um, uh, from a big perspective and start to have some of those difficult conversations about what sorts of um, restrictions they might need to make on their driving or what sorts of adaptations they might need to make. And sometimes we call upon our colleagues that are driving rehabilitation specialists. So Mm -hmm. occupational therapists or physical therapists, sometimes psychologists that have added training, what they do all day is try and assess driving capacity and help people make um, the best, safest choices. Do you realize that your ability to drive as well as you used to, it doesn't matter how old you are, how, how your ability to drive used to be is less than what it used to be? Do you realize that or does your brain not let you in on that secret? That is a great question, and I think it depends. I think that there are certain common conditions that might impact our insight into self-evaluation. For example, um, dementia is a very common condition, and dementia is a spectrum. So a person might have very mild cognitive impairment, or it might be quite advanced. And as our cognitive impairment advances, we might lose that capacity to be able to assess our own safety. Is it true that if you uh, recognize the fact that your memory is not as good as it used to be, your cognitive function is not as good as it used to be, that you don't have dementia? That's a great question, Dr. Size. I think many of us learn that in medical school, that if a person had insight into the fact that they were losing their memory, it was probably a worried well person. But now I think we understand more that some individuals do have some insight into early deficits and might bring this up with their providers or their family members. So we take those subjective concerns really seriously. Sometimes, especially people that are used to focus or used to functioning at a really high level, they notice those deficits. I think memory is one thing, but when it comes to the cognition, that's another. We learned when we were interviewing Dr. Driscoll, if your hearing is less, your cognition is impacted. If you need a hearing aid and you're not getting one, you're not driving as well as possible. Yeah, and and we're recognizing midlife hearing loss that's not treated as a preventable risk factor Mm -hmm. for dementia, too. But you're exactly right. So in addition to memory, we think about things like executive functioning, which is planning and organizing. You have to know your route. You have to be familiar with your car, recognize when you need to get gas or service. You have to have good visual spatial skills to be able to assess how far ahead of you the next car is or when you can make a left-hand turn. You have to have good attention skills. So cognition is huge. You know, uh, most people think that older drivers are bad drivers. That's not necessarily true. In fact, I looked up some statistics, and these come from the RAND Corporation. First of all, it's estimated that 25% of all drivers by the year 2025 will be older, meaning 65 or older. That's one out of every four drivers. Mm -hmm. And it's a leading cause of accidental death, uh, a car crash. But it's not as safe as some think. Only 16%. Uh, are more are likely to cause an accident than adult drivers. 16% more likely to cause an accident if you're over 65. And uh, drivers less than 25 
less than 25 or 188% likelier than adult drivers to cause an accident. But if older individuals are in an accident, they're more likely to be killed. Mm, right, right. Pretty interesting. So tell us how you assess someone. They come in and they say, you know, I wonder about my, my driving or the family wonders about their driving. How do you assess their ability to continue to drive safely? Yeah, well, we look at a number of things and it's always helpful for me if I can talk to um, my patient and somebody that's on the road with them, so whoever their passenger is, to really get a sense of what's happening, get a good history about things they might be struggling with. Um, perhaps it's night driving. Perhaps it's driving on the expressway. Have there been any accidents? How does their... Um, co-pilot feel about their driving. And then I, um, in addition to cognition, which we talked about extensively, I measure their visual acuity and visual field. So how good is their peripheral vision? Uh, as we age, we can have a number of conditions like arthritis that can impact our neck mobility, upper extremity strength, lower extremity strength. We make sure they have good sensation in their feet and so that they can operate uh, the pedals and, and make sure they're gripping the steering wheel effectively. And I also spend a lot of time looking at their individual medical conditions. There are a number of medical conditions that can impact our ability to attend to the responsibilities of driving and what medications I'm treating those conditions with. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that as well. If you determine that medically they possibly should no longer be driving, are you required to report that to the state or to the DMV? So Different states have different reporting laws, and in our state, in Minnesota, we do not have a mandatory reporting law. Ours is um, elective. I, I always view it as kind of my ethical responsibility to have that serious conversation with a patient if I think they need to stop driving, contract for safety, and, and so oftentimes I will tell them I'm going to report um, your, your at-risk status to the state, but in other states, uh, providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, and advanced practice providers are required. Do they then uh, call them in for a driver's test? Yeah. So if um, an individual makes a report of an at-risk driver, and it doesn't have to be a provider, it could be a concerned family member or a neighbor, um, makes a report to driver vehicle services, then driving vehicle services contacts the at-risk driver and might request that they do a in-person, on-the-road test and a written test with a certified instructor and then can make a decision based on that. So tell us um, about the alternatives. You mentioned, uh, I think we call it driver rehabilitation. How does that work and who do you send them to? I think you mentioned occupational therapy, physical therapy. How does that work? So there are driving rehabilitation specialists all over the country and a great website for resources about where to find a driving rehabilitation specialist would be the AAA website. has links for every state. And um, once you are working with a driving rehabilitation specialist, they're going to do both in the office and on the road assessments and find out what a person is having trouble with and what they're doing really well. If there are remediations or ways to help them with the areas where they're having trouble, like say, for example, um, an individual um, that has recently had an amputation might need adaptive services to their vehicle, or an individual that um, has weakness on one side might need different um, uh, um, tools within their car to help them operate their vehicle, they can help make those changes. Sometimes they have to make the suggestion that we can't make any remediation 
remediations and that we need to stop driving. And they're very good at those challenging cases. So if your ability to drive becomes impaired, there are some options. Absolutely. Our guest, internist and geriatrician, Dr. Erica Tung. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll stay on the subject of keeping older loved ones safe. We'll talk about fall prevention and what you can do around the home to make it as safe as possible. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are talking with internist and geriatrician Dr. Erica Tung from the Mayo Clinic. We've talked about impaired ability to drive as individuals get older. Then at some point in time, you may have to retire from driving altogether. And now we want to concentrate on falls because they are the leading cause of injury among older adults. How about some fall prevention tips? What do you tell your your patients? Because it's a huge problem. You and I both know, and as an orthopedic surgeon, we know that if someone falls down and breaks their hip, it's often a terminal event, even though we fix it and there's all sorts of complications that can occur post-operative. Yeah. First of all, falls are a very serious issue as we get older. About a third of older adults will fall, a third of community-dwelling older adults will fall this year, and many of them will have a serious injury like a head injury or a hip fracture, as you mentioned. So the first thing I would say that I would start with is knowing that falls are not an inevitable part of aging. I think that's the first myth that's out there is that, okay, I'm older and so I fell, or my mother is older and, and she just fell. Many falls are preventable because falls in older adults are what we call multifactorial, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's usually not just a trip or a slip, but multiple factors are contributing. Perhaps a person's medical conditions like um, Parkinson's disease or a medicine that they're on that's making them unstable and the fact that there's hazards in their hallways. It's usually multiple different factors. So when I'm seeing a patient that's fallen or that I'm concerned is at risk for falls, I'm looking at many many different factors that could be contributing. And their answer to how they can prevent falls might be different than the next patient. So uh, medications is one of the things you talked about. Are there some medications in particular that are more likely to result in a fall? Yes. So any medication that affects one's brain, whether it's an anxiety medication, an antihistamine medication, a pain medication, if it impacts our brain in any way, it can impact our response time, our reaction time, and increase our risk for falls. How important is continuing to be active when you get older? Uh, How important is that in the prevention of falls? Oh, and balance, too. Right. Yeah, that's the magic ingredient is to uh, healthful aging is a very active lifestyle. So the more active we are, not just aerobically, but with balance, with flexibility and with resistance training, the less likely we are to fall. And and if I was going to write a prescription for somebody to prevent them from falling, it would exercise would be the top thing on my prescription. What about assistive devices? And I'm think, thinking particularly about handrails and a, a raised toilet seat. Those are really important, particularly in the shower or around the tub, aren't they? Yeah, grab bars around um, slippery areas, like in the shower or the tub, are really helpful. Getting rid of hazards like throw rugs is important, you know, making sure that they have an adhesive backing. But the big thing I see, and I do a lot of home visits, and so I, I, you do. I, I do a lot of home visits. One of my favorite parts of my job. And one thing I see a lot that's um, often a cause of falls are 
clutter on the stairs. Mm. So people, you know, we stare, store things on the stairs to go up or down. <laughs> get things off of the stairs. Get not them. a storage area. Not a storage area. <laughs> And um, oxygen tubing. I think that tubing. might pertain yeah. to more people than just elderly <laughs> yeah. folks, but I'm just saying. <laughs> we all do that. But as we get older, that becomes more of a risk. Right. So we see that as a big problem, mm-hmm. clutter. When do you decide that it would be a good idea for you to go to someone's home? Or do they request it, or how does that work? So for some people that are um, maybe too frail to come into the clinic or it's too cumbersome for them to come into the clinic, we have a number of programs where we go to the patient and try to bring the Mayo Clinic to them. Um, For other people that sometimes um, their primary care provider has requested that a geriatrician see them, but a question that can only be answered in the home, like a home safety issue or like a dementia-related issue, sometimes it's better to see somebody in their own environment. We'll go to them. Home calls are not dead. No. No. Let's go back to cognitive. Cognition for just the last couple of minutes. Does that make a difference when you're if if you're unsteady on your feet? Yeah, it can. And sometimes we can be impulsive and get out of a chair really quickly or spring out of bed and 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 before our blood pressure can equilibrate. Um, and and sometimes it can affect our ability to utilize an assistive device like a cane or a walker. So the earlier we can get established with using those tools, the better. What advice would you have for a lot of these uh, older individuals have caregivers and uh, they have to pay particular attention to their own health, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. If the caregiver's not well, they're not going to be able to provide adequate care to their loved ones. So caregivers really need to think about making sure they're taking time out for their own health, for their own well-being, and for taking a break for, from their, their duties as a caregiver. And that's hard to do sometimes, but um, I want to empower our caregivers to make sure that they know how important they are as well. You're keeping your eye out for a lot of things here. We've just covered a few of them. You know, are you still able to drive? Are you at a fall risk. Financial exploitation is another thing that we're starting to hear a lot more about as the population ages. How do you keep an eye out for that? Yeah, there are so many different scams and scary things out there for our older patients that they're at risk for. And so especially when I'm identifying somebody that might have some cognitive troubles, perhaps I'm making the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment or dementia, I make sure I talk with that individual and their family members about the fact that we need to think about um, Internet safety, that they might be a target for some of these exploitive behaviors. And sometimes if there are easy things to do, like on automatic bill pay or simplifying accounts, that's the time to do it when they can make their own decisions. Dr. Erica Tong, no question about it, driving provides this sense of independence and control for many seasoned citizens. But driving retirement is a normal part of aging, and it needs to be carefully considered and discussed openly with the patient and the family and their primary care provider. If you or your parents or your loved ones are getting older, do what you can to make your home safe. Falls are, in fact, the leading cause of injury among older adults. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic internist and geriatrician, Dr. Erica Tong. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the online patient community called Mayo Clinic Connect and how digital medicine is changing health care. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
injections are used to relieve pain in joints due to arthritis and overuse injuries. A recent study suggests that frequent steroid use may affect cartilage health. A Mayo Clinic sports medicine specialist says there are risks and benefits of injections. They say when pain affects quality of life, a corticosteroid may be prescribed. Corticosteroids are basically strong anti-inflammatory medications. They can decrease inflammation in joints and tendons. Patients who have developed osteoarthritis or degeneration of the joint may have some benefits after the use of corticosteroids. Multiple injections in the same joint may lead to cartilage issues around the bone. For that reason, doctors may want to limit the amount of corticosteroid injection they do in a single joint in order to avoid these complications. Injections may offer short-term pain relief, but should be used together with a good rehabilitation program for longer results. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Mayo Clinic Connect was started in 2011, and it's an online community connecting patients and family caregivers with each other. It's a great idea. It is. Community members share experiences, ask questions, find answers, get support, and exchange information. Joining us in studio to tell us more about it is Colleen Young, Community Director for Mayo Clinic Connect, and one of Connect's volunteer mentors, Rosemary Huckleberry. It's nice to meet both of you. Thank you. Colleen Rosemary, very nice to have you here because I think all of us should know more about Mayo Clinic Connect, and I certainly want to learn more about it. Colleen, let's start with you. Is this something that you started in 2011? Uh, no, I came in in about 2015 and took over as the community director. So just to, to simplify it the most, it's a support group online. Absolutely. And can anyone join? Anyone can join. So you don't have to be a Mayo Clinic patient to join. Uh, It's open for Mayo Clinic patients as well as anyone from around the world. And, in fact, we have members from around the world on Connect. How How many? many? Yeah. Oh, (laughs) good one. Uh, Just uh, shy of 90,000 members registered on Connect. Impressive. And what would you say your mission is? What, What are you really trying to accomplish by forming this group? So a lot of people build online communities for patients to connect them. And that's what our name says as well. But we go beyond that. So besides just connecting them, we really want them to connect in order to improve their health and well-being. So we try to encourage them to define what that is. So perhaps it's just reducing their anxiety as they're waiting to start chemotherapy treatment. Or perhaps it's because they want to quit smoking. So the members themselves are determining why they come to Connect. Rosemary, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you from and how did you get involved with Connect? I am from Kentucky and I am an organ transplant recipient. Um, And when I got home, I was doing well, but I was wanting to know what life was like after the recovery, uh, how long did I need to maintain certain things to stay healthy? Um, what was in my future? Online, I was searching for people, and I found Mayo Clinic Connect, and I found people who were asking a lot of questions about liver disease, liver transplant, all kinds of things that I had just recently experienced, and I was able to share my experiences and found out I was supporting them, and they liked it, and they thanked me. And the benefit for me, though, is I met others who lived with transplants who were able to support me and encourage me to keep going. When was your transplant? My transplant was actually in 2009. And it was a liver? Liver and a kidney. 
You had both. I had both, and I had a rare liver disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis. No, you look fabulous. Well, thank you. Well, thank and you. And you went to the Mayo Clinic to have that done, didn't you? I was actually flown out of ICU by my home transplant department to get up here. So my heart also belongs to Mayo Clinic. So you went from being a member of the Connect Group to now you're uh, you're one of the facilitators. So tell us about what what you're doing that's different now. Well, what I am doing different is. I have made a personal commitment to stay update on what people are asking about. But also, as a mentor, I am more of a connector, a supporter. If someone has a medical concern or question, I try to connect them with other people who share similar concerns. And and I have had the privilege of meeting, uh, conversing, sitting around the coffee table, so to speak, or the kitchen table, and talking to people from every state, different countries, and different medical facilities. And that's where it gets really interesting because by sharing all of our different experiences, mm-hmm. uh, we become smarter. We learn better how to take care of ourselves. It's kind of a, a blended conversation. Colleen, can you tell us some other stories or examples of how Connect has helped patients? What I would love to say is that what brings someone to Connect is often an acute need, right? So they have a a really burning question. And and like Rosemary, what brings them back is that they can give back. And uh, that really then builds community. Um, I would love to share a story where we've been able to build that collective knowledge. So I started a thread that was just uh, called, How Do You Get Off to a Good Start with a New Specialist? Mm. And so we started to collect that information. Everybody shared their tips and tricks. And then that was made into an article for the Mayo Clinic app. So while we helped you know, our thousands of members within the community, we were then able to produce basically a piece of information for patients by patients. Crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing. <laughs> so how do you ensure that the information that, that's on Mayo Clinic Connect is accurate? So there are a number of different ways and safeguards that we have. First of all, we just have some spam filters that help us. So we use technology where technology can be helpful. But the human factor is super important. So the first uh, line of defense in an online community to make sure that it's good information is that you have an active community. You would be surprised how self-correcting the community is. So we model compassionate behavior on uh, Connect, very welcoming. We have zero tolerance for zero responses. So we always make sure that a new member is greeted. And by having that active community, people are not trying to be bad actors, but they're maybe bringing some misinformation because that's how they understood the information that their physician gave to them or that they heard from their neighbor. So you had some physician moderators, for example, or some experts to look over the material. So we have moderators, yes. We have five paid moderators. And can someone who uh, signs up for Mayo Clinic Connect, can can they remain anonymous? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the ways that we uh, ensure people's privacy is guarded. So we only know from the people what they 
uh, want to share with us. And there are different topics, right? I mean, yes. you, can, you can join whatever group or talk to whichever group that you want to. Correct. Right now we have over 60 groups of varying uh, conditions or demographics, like we have a group dedicated to caregivers, for example. And right now you all are here learning a little bit from each other and learning how to be better mentors and Rosemary what is it that you hope to learn or what do you see for your future as a connector? I would like to find ways to make people who are afraid to ask a question feel comfortable. You know, it you put yourself out in front of people. It, it, you know, for me, it was emotionally difficult to share my journey. And it is for a lot of people. I'd like to keep up with promoting the positivity, welcoming everybody, which we do, but to make it easier for someone to take that jump into the cold water. Well, I can't imagine how helpful it would be for somebody who is going, uh, getting ready to go through a transplant to be able to talk to someone like you who has been through it. Yes. One example is a gentleman who struggled with this pre-transplant you know, symptoms and hospitalizations, and he had a whole community of people supporting him, sharing what they'd been through. And after his transplant, he came back to us and said, hey, everybody, mm. I got my so transplant. Much. I just got moved to my room. Thank you, and I'll get back with you. He awesome. wrote from his hospital bed. Isn't that beautiful? Mayo Clinic Connect, it's an online community where people can share experiences and find support from people just like themselves. And anyone can join, too, by the way. It's uh, connect.mayoclinic.org. Right, anyone. Our thanks to the director of Mayo Clinic Connect, Colleen Young, and volunteer mentor, Rosemary Huckleberry. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the new ways of reaching patients through digital medicine. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Tracy, there is little question that healthcare delivery in the U.S. is shifting toward virtual healthcare. Now, some, like today's guest, prefer to call it connected care or digital care. It refers to visits or interactions that take place between patients and clinicians over the telephone or some kind of video hookup. Patients, I think, are increasingly drawn to the concept of healthcare services that come to them rather than vice versa. It makes sense to me. Yeah, that not sounds that, great. Yeah, not that long ago, most health systems assumed that a quiet, private clinical setting was essential to the doctor-patient relationship, but not anymore. Joining us in studio is the director for Mayo Clinic Center for Connected Care, Dr. Steve Amon. Welcome to the program. It's nice to see you again. No, thank you for having me. Dr. Amon, nice to meet you. Nice to I, meet you. Know, I know you know Tracy, but uh, I haven't met you before, so it's great to have you on the program, particularly talking about what you like to refer to as connected care. Yes. Um, so healthcare is changing. The world is changing. Healthcare is uh, changing, and there are a lot of names for what you call connected care, and it gets a little bit confusing. So, do they all mean the same? Virtual telemedicine, telehealth, digital health, and connected care? I think there are probably definitions for each of them that make them sound different, but in the end. Most people interpret them the same way, and, and you summarized it well. It's, it's the ability for us as doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners to reach out to our patients where they're at to help take care of them, and that might be a conversation over phone. It might be a conversation with video so we can see facial expressions or see something move on the patient. It might be collecting data about that patient either through 
questionnaires or monitors that the patient is wearing are utilizing to send data back to the clinic so that we can use that to make decisions with the patient about what's right for them. Well, it sounds fabulous. I mean, we've got listeners out there right now who are saying, well, i got a question for my doctor. So <laughs> how do you access how, how What gives you the ability to do this, either by telephone or some video link? Yeah, so there's several different ways. The, the one that's probably the least sexy but the most utilized is just sending messages to your doctors rather than playing phone tag with each other at the end of the day. So the ability to use the patient portal to send an update to your doctor, my blood pressure is higher than it used to be, or my shoulder isn't better today, and for the doctor or the appropriate team member on their team to get back to the patient in a good amount of time has made those interactions much less onerous on both sides. The way I look at it, it's similar to the way we all make dinner plans now. We always start off by sending a message to someone, hey, do you want to get together for dinner? If that's all that's needed and the answer is yes, then you're done. As soon as it gets complicated, then that escalates to something else. It's a phone call or It might even be, why don't we get together first and then make the plans for the weekend? So we're just trying to do the same thing with medicine that we're all used to doing culturally in many other aspects of our lives. So explain, um, again, you're the director for Mayo Clinic Center for Connected Care. So it's its own office at Mayo Clinic. And what is the desire or what is the hope and hopes and dreams? Yeah, so, so we are more than just the technology. We have a, a very skilled team that helps put together business cases for doing these type of interactions, the secure messages, or a video visit after you've had an operation at Mayo Clinic. Uh, lawyers, compliance officers, implementation specialists. So our job is to work with the practice at Mayo Clinic, the doctors in their practices, to understand which of these tools might help you with your practice. For a surgeon, it might be doing video visits after the patient's had a surgery rather than making that patient come back hundreds of miles to see them for a routine follow-up visit. Now the surgeon can go to that patient's home virtually or digitally uh, to see them and have that conversation, which saves the patients a lot of travel time, a lot of travel cost, and they provide the same level of care. As the surgeon at the table here, how would you? what percentage of your patients do you think you could have successfully treated in a virtual sense? I would suppose uh, at least half, Mm -hmm. although sometimes uh, our patients would come back for imaging because it was a cancer or a tumor and we would need to see them and Mm -hmm. they would need to come to the clinic. But for a wound check, for example, or to see how the range of motion is after a total knee, um, you could easily do that um, with a video. And and do you use Skype? Is that the medium or what's the medium? Yeah, so there's special software that's utilized to have the data privacy issues we need and the HIPAA compliance. So we, we do have a vendor we work with that satisfies all those privacy security considerations. The ones that we all use in our personal lives, like Skype and FaceTime, et cetera, don't quite have the security or the or the reliability. We forget casually when the conversation drops on a call. If you're discussing someone's pathology result, you don't want to have the audio glitch on the word not. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so we have we do a lot of stringent analysis of the endpoints as well as the software that connect us to our patients to help that work. And what about regulatory issues? Uh, how do you circumvent those? And, and aren't there a fair number that are hard to get around? Yeah, state to state, country yeah. to country. Exactly. So, so in order to provide care to a patient where they're at, uh, technically we need to be licensed where the patient is when they're getting that care. 
So that limits our ability to do new business, uh, for, for me to do a consult with a patient who's never been to Mayo Clinic before, to reach across the state line or across the country line to do an intake or to provide care we stay away from. What we can do in that circumstance, though, is have better record upload or information gathering about the patient to help optimize their time when they do come here. Now, if, if they have been a patient yep. here and they go home, yep. uh, then it's okay if I don't have a license in Illinois? That, then our, we've had our legal team review that, and they feel that is continuation of the care plan you set in place here. And it's what you've been doing on the phone uh, for decades anyway, and having video doesn't change that bar. So this is um, more broadly just saying it's for more follow-up care. What about initial visits? Is there any sort of future there? There is a future there, and I, I do think that we are going to see that regulatory environment change. All kinds of legislators are talking to us about what do we need to do to help patients get better access for care. So that that landmark will change over time. In terms of new visits, we do have a tool that we use called Express Care Online, where a patient who's already a Mayo Clinic patient can log on to the patient portal, and for the 20 most common primary care diagnoses, they can answer a few questions online. Within an hour, that is reviewed by a nurse practitioner that works in one of the express care clinics, and if appropriate, can issue a prescription for that patient based on their responses. All within that hour, the patient didn't have to leave school or work or home in order to get that done. So there is some opportunity to optimize care even at the front end. And how would a patient access that? That's through their uh, Mayo Clinic patient online services. And do lots of not just Mayo Clinic, but are there patient portals for many patients? Is that gaining traction across the country? Yeah, so most healthcare systems now have some version of a patient portal, usually tied to their electronic health record. Uh, The utilization of the Mayo Clinic portal is higher than average. We have about two-thirds to three-quarters of our patients using their portal around an episode of care at Mayo, which is at least twice what the national average is. So we have a team that works very hard with our patients to understand what features are you wanting? Is that working right for you? How do you get to the features you want as a patient? <laughs> That's about something about Minnesotans being overachievers. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, so what is the future? Oh, of, one more oh. question before we get there. Reimbursement. Yeah. I, I, will, will Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance companies pay? for these uh, connected care visits? There's all kinds of different rules around which types of visits are reimbursed and which ones might not be. Okay. The One of the reasons why it's had such a good uptake in the surgical practice is because most operations are, are handled by a single bundle, which covers all the follow-up visits. So to do the follow-up visit by video that way makes sense uh, because we don't have to worry about whether the patients are getting billed or et cetera because it's already part of what they paid for their knee operation, for instance. And it's also been said that healthcare is moving from a fee-based to a risk-based Correct. model. Is that what, what does that mean, and is that good for connected care? I, I think, again, managing our patients around diagnoses and saying this is this is how much the this care care costs and not worrying about line-iting each little thing that goes into that will be the move that will make this more adopted. And what's the future? Yeah, the future is utilizing data. So the ability for us to get data back from our patients, be that with a device I 
prescribed to the patient to take home a blood pressure monitor, a scale that is Bluetooth connected, or now wearable devices that are monitoring heart rate, oxygen saturations, even some electrolyte values can be determined by some of these sensors. Having that data flow back to our system, having some of our computing power, the artificial intelligence power, act on that data and give us advice about how to escalate or de-escalate a patient's care is the future of utilizing these connectivity options. Well, we're just getting started. Huh? Love it. Dr. Steve Amon is director for Mayo Clinic Center for Connected Care. I mean, it's like, beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> Connected Healthcare is here, and I love this line, the patient will see you now. And in the not-too-distant future, I think patients are likely to expect this as one way that they can interact with their healthcare providers. Our thanks to Dr. Steve Amon. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.